Take your Bible with me this morning, if you will, and open to the Gospel of John chapter 4. Uh, the Gospel of John chapter 4. And then we're going to read beginning in verse uh, 19. We're going to read down to verse 26. We read this passage last week. We're going to read it again this week because this message about worship, one of the seven habits of deeply spiritual people, comes out of this passage. Let me remind you that Jesus is passing through Samaria. His disciples are with him. They go into the city of Sychar to buy food. Jesus sits down at the well, and this woman from Samaria comes out to meet him, and Jesus engages her in a conversation. It starts out as a conversation about water, but then it moves to a conversation about worship. The end result is that this woman's life is going to be changed by the grace of God. And a lot of people from the city of Samaria, their lives are going to be changed by the grace of God as well. But right in the middle of this conversation, Jesus says some of the most important things for you and I to, to, to know about when it comes to the matter of worship. Of course, worship is all over the Bible. You can go back to the Old Testament. You can go through the New Testament, get into the Revelation. You see all kinds of pictures and images of what worship is. But I think as succinct as any passage is this one about the matter of worship. She's speaking in chapter 4, verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Please notice that phrase. The Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then listen to Jesus' declaration of his deity. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father, on uh, this Sunday, as we continue talking about the importance of worship, the habit of worship, I pray, Lord, that you'll move our hearts, move our minds, help us to, to see the significance of bowing before you, of declaring your great worth, of doing everything to your glory. Lord, you alone are deserving, and I pray that you will help us to worship you today. In your name I pray, amen. Some of you have been blessed to have had this experience. My, my wife and I have not yet. But... If you've been out to Yellowstone National Park, you know that it's a geological hotbed with a lot of geysers and hot springs that are throughout the park. You can find them at various places, and a lot of people like to go out and spend time looking at those different geysers and different hot springs. But when you think about this Yellowstone National Park and a specific geyser, there's one that always stands out in your thinking. And it's named Old Faithful. How many of you have ever seen Old Faithful? All right. Old Faithful is the most visited of all the geysers, and it is so for one very simple reason. It's faithful. It's predictable. You, you know when it's going to occur or the approximate time that it's going to occur. And if you go there, the National Park Service has built a boardwalk that encircles Old Faithful. And on one side, there are benches, and as it gets time for Old Faithful to erupt, they will have people that go out, the visitors, the guests that will go out, they'll sit on those benches, they'll stand around to watch it as it occurs. You can actually stand on the other side, though there's no benches on the other side, but you can stand on the other side, but when the geyser erupts, you're liable to get pretty wet. Maybe that's the reason why they didn't put benches over there on that side, but if you look at that little area, that section of this national park, there are historic hotels, there's quaint shops, and they fan out from this geyser, but it's Old Faithful that's the center of everybody's attention. As the time for the eruption grows closer, there's an increasing number of tourists that'll join together to sit on the benches or just to stand on the boardwalk. 
And you know, they've got their cameras. They're going to get video of it when it occurs, or they're going to get still pictures of it when it occurs. They want to be able to document it and carry it away with them when they leave that place. The steam rises from the opening in the earth, and there's a sputtering of water beneath the ground. At that moment, you might hear somebody say, here she goes. And then that sputtering water quickly turns into a fountain of hot water streaming toward the heavens above as much as 100 feet high. And if you're not so mesmerized by that geyser to look around, if you do so, you will see people who literally have their jaws dropped open as they're watching this take place, this geyser, the water of this geyser cascading up into the air. People look almost spellbound and awe-filled as the dancing water performs. And everybody looks at it in a, with a sense of, of that kind of awe. It's, it's said by some that onlookers display a sense of awe that is almost worship-like. It's because in those few moments, they've witnessed something powerful and something that is beyond themselves. You might hear a dad say to his son or to his children, did you see that? Amazing, wasn't it? Or you might hear a little boy saying to his sister, I can't wait to tell Johnny when we get home. You might hear another one say, can we stay and watch it again? Can we stay and watch it again? I mean, it's incredible to hear the things that people say as they observe the eruption of that geyser. And then the water falls back to the ground, back underneath the surface, and almost with a sense of reverence, people return to their cars or go out to the gift shops knowing that they've witnessed something truly spectacular. You know, that's a pretty dynamic picture of what worship really ought to be. It's a pretty good illustration of how we ought to approach the worship of God, whether it's coming together corporately or it's worshiping God personally and individually. There ought to be a sense that we're witnessing the spectacular and the awe-inspiring presence of God that causes us to sit in wonder at who he is, at what he has done, and what he says in his word. And then when we leave the services, we go away talking about the magnificence of being in God's presence with other members of God's family. Shouldn't that be the way worship is for all of us? I mean, in essence, to worship God is to recognize his worth or worthiness. It is to look Godward and to acknowledge in all appropriate ways, all appropriate ways, the value of what we see. Have you come today to see God and to hear God and to walk away in a few minutes with your mouth open, with your heart overflowing, to talk to your family and to your friends? Did you see God today? Did you hear God today? In essence, worship is this kind of, of, of illustration that's found in this geyser called Old Faithful. The Bible calls this kind of worship glorifying God or giving glory to God. And did you know that that's the ultimate duty of mankind? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the very first question of the catechism is about God. And it says that man has been created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the very essence of worship. That's the very essence of what God is calling all of us to do. Scripture views glorifying God in at least six different activities. First of all, it's in the activity of praising God for his person. That is who he is. That is what he's done. It in, involves thanking him for his gifts and his goodness to us. Did we stop today to say, God, thank you for watching over me this past week. Thank you for waking me up today and bringing me together with the people of God to worship you and to have this week ahead of me. It involves asking him to meet the needs of others and ourselves. It's prayer. It's talking to God and saying, Lord, here's my needs. Here's what's going on in my life. And here's what's going on in the lives of others. It involves presenting him our gifts, 
our service, and even ourselves. Isn't that what Paul meant when he says that we're to place our bodies, what, a living sacrifice? It involves learning about him from his word as it's read and taught so that we can go away and we can obey what it says. It involves, now listen, it involves telling others about his worth and introducing them to Jesus Christ through our testimony. Uh, Sometimes I wonder if we're not more effective in our evangelism or we wouldn't be more effective in our evangelism if we looked like we actually enjoyed the worship of God. And we talked about it in the terms that demonstrated that we're excited about the worship of God. And yet that's exactly what God has called every one of us to do. It is one of the habits. It is the first habit of deeply spiritual people. They learn what it means to worship God and to bring him worship. And worship is not about what God's going to do for you. Worship is about you coming and saying, God, here am I. I've come to give you the glory and to give you the honor. Last week, we looked at worship by discussing the explanation of worship. If you didn't hear that message, you can go back and hear it online. I hope you'll do so because these two messages go together. They need each other. But we talked about the explanation of worship, and we looked at the definition, and we took apart some definitions and understandings of what it means to worship. But I told you my definition is to worship or that worship is a conscious passion to glorify God in all things because he alone is deserving. That's the definition that works for me. Everything I do, no matter what it is, I consciously, intentionally, purposefully do it so that I glorify God in what I do. And why would I do that? Because he alone is worthy of that kind of attention, that kind of purpose, that kind of intentionality. And then we talked about the direction that God alone is worthy of worship. Four times. Twice he says, worship the Father. Two times it says, worship him. The worship's not about us. The worship is to be directed to God. And that was the explanation of worship. And we spent an entire message on that one point. But today I want us to talk further about worship, and I want us to add some points to what we learned last week. And the second is the expression of worship. There's the explanation of worship, but then there's the expression of worship that's found here in John chapter 4. And we begin by looking at the disposition. What is our disposition supposed to be when we come to worship God? Well, Jesus says it here on more than one occasion. He says to worship the Father how? In spirit, that's the disposition, and in truth, that's, uh, you know, that's our, our duty, The disposition, what is our disposition? It's to be in spirit. Will you please notice, go back to verse 23 and notice for a moment. He said, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. Will you please notice that it's the little s and not a capital S? It is true that we worship by means of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And apart from the Holy Spirit, we can never worship effectively. But he's not talking about the Holy Spirit at this moment. He's talking about our spirit. What does he mean when he says in spirit? What is he talking about when he's talking about our disposition? Well, in essence, he's saying that worship has to be sincere. And it has to be genuine. And it has to be something that comes from the depths of our heart. It can't be a sham or a superficial religious ceremony. We don't just go through the motions, but there's meaning to everything that we do and the reason why we do those things. It doesn't matter how noble the external things we do in a worship service may be. If our hearts aren't in it, it doesn't worship. It isn't worship to God. It doesn't do us any good to worship with the right motions. Let's everybody move the same way and do exactly the same thing. If we have the wrong emotions and we have the wrong attitude, you can't sing spiritual songs, lifting up hands in meaningful worship if our hearts aren't there and our hearts aren't in it. Amen? Worship is, is a matter of expressing a disposition. Lord, it's all about you. Lord, I recognize I've come into your presence and you alone are worthy and deserving. And I'm not here because somebody twisted my arm to be here. I'm here because I want to be here. 
I'm here because you are worthy of me singing your praises and praying to you and worshiping you in fellowship and in service and in listening to the preaching of your word so that I can go away in obedience. My worship isn't just a perfunctory duty that I go through, but but it's a matter of the meaning of my heart and the feeling of my heart that my disposition is I love God and I want to worship God. I want you to keep your place here in John chapter 4. I want you to turn back with me for a moment to Isaiah chapter 1. Because the kind of worship I'm talking about that has no meaning and has no heart to it, and we're just going through the motions, you know, we just do the ceremony because that's the moment in the service when that ceremony is normally done. That's exactly what the Jewish people had slipped into, that kind of ceremonialism, that kind of formalism. I want you to listen to what God has to say to them through Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. I mean, you can't use two places to describe you any worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. How bad was Israel? They were like Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams in the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no, bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of uh, bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Do you hear what he's saying? I mean, he's telling us, God is telling us that he's sick of their sacrifices, of their Sabbaths and their holy days. That he's tired of them just following the rules and bringing the right animals and going through the right rituals and keeping the Sabbaths and the festivals according to the law. It's just a matter of ceremonialism, but there's no heart to it. They even go through the ceremonial prayers, but in spite of it, there was something that was missing from their worship. And what was it? Their lives were filled with sin. They were full of hypocrisy. They were full of insincerity. They had no spirit in their worship. They checked off a box. I went through the motions. I did what I was supposed to do on the given day. I was supposed to do it. Now I can go on and do whatever else I want to do. They weren't captivated like sitting at that geyser, old faithful, captivated by what they were seeing and what they were doing. They were just going through the outward motions. God wants a proper attitude in worship more than he wants the preferred rituals of worship. We get caught up in, you know, what's going to go on at what moment. And our staff works diligently through every part of a worship service to make sure that they all connect together in every aspect as best as we can, humanly speaking, can, can draw people into the worship of God. But the reality is it is more than just an order of service. It's a matter of the heart. It's it's a matter of sincerity. It's a matter of genuineness. It's a matter of emotion. I want to be here, and I want to see God, and I want to hear God. By the way, one of the the ways we know if we're truly worshiping God or not is simply to look at our lives, lives and ask ourselves, are we being transformed into the image of God? You say, what do you mean, Pastor? I mean that insincere, ineffectual worship leaves people unchanged and disinterested in the things of God and obedience to God. Here's what I know about worship today. If you and I come to worship today because we want to be in God's presence with God's people, we want to worship him and sing to him, we want to give glory to him, we want everything that we say and do today to bring honor to his name because he alone is deserving and we're enthusiastic about it and we're excited about it and we want to be a part of it. Can I tell you that you'll go away and there'll be changes in your life as a result of worshiping God in that fashion. 
But here's what happens when you go through the ceremonies and the rituals and you're just checking off a box and you're going through the motions. Yeah, you might feel better in your mind about it, but you didn't really see God and you didn't really hear God and consequently you aren't really changed by God. It's when we worship God that we have lives that are changed. And if our lives, if you're the same person you were five years ago, 10 years ago, a year ago, then you're going through the motions and you're not going through real, genuine worship where you're captivated with who God is and what God has done and what God says. How much of your life has moved toward holiness and godliness over this past year? Or have you simply been going through the motions without any real meaning to your worship? When I think about what I'm talking about this morning, I think about one of the most infamous characters of the Gospels, at least the early part of the Gospels. His name was Herod. You remember the story? Jesus is born in Bethlehem. I mean, there is this great rejoicing in the heavens because Jesus has come. Sometime between the birth of Jesus and two years, when they have moved out into a place where they're living now, Mary and Joseph and Jesus are living in a more permanent kind of a setting. It says that the wise men came to worship Jesus. Remember, they saw a star in the east. They had been told as far back as Daniel that that star indicated that the Messiah had come, the king had come. And now all these years later, after Daniel, they've been watching for that star. And they have followed that star until it's over Jerusalem. And they go to Herod and they say, Herod, where is this king that's been born? And what does Herod say? I mean, he's absolutely afraid, isn't he? He's concerned that the the one who was born in Bethlehem is going to usurp his authority, going to take over his rule. And so he says to the wise men, I tell you what, let's do. Go and search carefully for the young child, he says. And when you have found him, bring back word to me. Now, you know the next phrase? That I may come and worship him. Now, let me ask you a question. Was Herod's worship intentional and purposeful, bringing glory to God? Was his heart in it because he wanted to see God exalted through it? What was the purpose of Herod's asking about this this Christ child that's been born and saying that he wants to come and worship him? Well, you know what it was. It was hollow. His words were hollow and they were meaningless. They weren't true. He He wasn't worried about worshiping God. He only wanted to find the one that he thought was a threat to him and snuff him out. And what did he do? All of the boys two years of age and under in Bethlehem, he had them killed. Can you imagine the weeping of the mothers and the grandparents, the fathers? Can you imagine the pain that so many of them were experiencing? Why? Because Herod had this pseudo idea of worship. He had no intentions of doing what the wise men do. What did they do when they found the Christ child? They bowed the knee and they presented to him gifts and they acknowledged that he was worthy and they were caught up in the awe of the moment of who he is. He is deserving of gold and frankincense and myrrh. He's deserving of those things. And then they leave another way and never tell Herod. And that's why Herod ends up killing all the baby boys from birth to two years of age so that he makes sure, if he can, to wipe out the Christ child. But it's not just Herod. Religious people, not just irreligious people like Herod that don't know what it means to worship in spirit. It's it's religious people who don't know what it means to worship in spirit. Who is the most well-known religious body of the day in Jesus' day? It's the Pharisees. You could say the scribes or the Sadducees, but most of the time we're thinking of the Pharisees, right? I mean, you and I have the full story. We know the backstory. We know what was going on behind the scenes. We know there was a lot of disingenuousness about them, that they were telling people one thing and doing something else altogether. But everybody in that day looked at them with great respect. These are the religious leaders of our day. But listen to what Jesus says to them in Matthew chapter 15 hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth 
and honor me with their lips. Now listen, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You hear what he says? I mean, the Pharisees that look so religious and so pious, the reality is that's all lip service. There's no spirit in it. There's no heart in it. There's no desire for it. It's going through the motions. It's checking off the box uh, that I have to check off so that I can salve my conscience and I can move along in life. Do you understand what Jesus is saying, that the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth? That's to be our disposition. We come to come before the Father and say, we want to see you. Lord, we want to have a seat around the geyser of your presence. We want to see you, Lord. We want to hear you. Our hearts are here. We get more excited about going to a Cincinnati Reds game. Well, maybe not this year. We get more excited about going to a Cincinnati Reds game, or in my case, an Atlanta Braves game, than we do about gathering together for the worship of God. Have you ever seen people walking into a stadium for a football game? I mean, these guys come in all dressed up. Some of them have colored faces. Some of them paint their entire chest. They high-five one another. They're all celebrating, talking about the different players. They can't wait for the game to begin. We can't even get here on time. And we don't have children that keep us from getting here on time. If you've got little children, that sometimes is difficult. I understand. We can't even get here on time. Where is the enthusiasm? Where is the spirit? Where is the excitement? Where do we come looking for God? If you're looking for God today, you'll see God today. If you're listening for God today, you'll hear God today. Not only should our disposition be the expression of our worship, but there's also the matter of our our devotion. He says to worship him in spirit and what? In truth. Now, those two things work together. You couldn't be saying and you can be saying, I want you to worship me truly and sincerely. And those two things amplify each other, but they go beyond that. Because all true worship to God is guided by the truth of Scripture. Worship is never a free-for-all. It's never let's do whatever we want to do. All true worship of God is guided by the truth of Scripture. We have to be devoted to the Bible and to the, the truth of the Bible. This idea furthers the previous statement about sincerity, but it expands it. Because God wants us to understand that there are boundaries to the way we go about worshiping God. R.C. Sproul is a, was a well-known uh, theologian, Presbyterian theologian. He's been in heaven for a few years now. But listen to what he says. I agree with him on this point. He writes, The worship to which we are called in our renewed state is far too important to be left to personal preferences, to whims, or to market, marketing strategies. It is the pleasing of God that is at the heart of worship. Now listen, therefore, our worship must be informed at every point by the word of God as we seek God's own instructions for worship that is pleasing to him. You agree with that? You should. Because Jesus says, if you're going to worship me, you got to worship me in spirit. That's with your heart and with sincerity and with enthusiasm and in truth. Devoted to the word of God, there has to be boundaries, and those boundaries are the ones that are found in the Bible. Every member of our staff will tell you that we've sat in staff meetings at times, and we've asked the question, what is it that they did in the early church, in the apostolic church, in their services? What were the elements that were involved in that early worship, in that early church? Obviously, they sang, and they prayed, and they preached and taught. They fellowshiped, they served, uh, they observed communion, they had baptism, they had all of these different elements. What is to confine our worship? It is the Scripture. We have to be committed to the Scripture. Worship has to engage our emotions. That's our spirit. And it has to engage our minds. That's the truth. And anybody who says, I went to church and I just felt good, well, what did you learn? I didn't really learn anything today. 
That isn't worship. Are y'all with me? That isn't worship. Worship is not only about the sincerity and the excitement of our hearts. It's about the truth of God. I go away knowing that I have heard from God. I know something more about who he is and about what he says. Listen, if you don't see God rightly, you can't worship him fully. You can't worship in a way that just makes you happy. Well, I feel good about worship like this. The question is, we want you to feel good, but is it guided by the truth? I read a story about a pastor whose son had gone to visit a mega church with one of his friends. And he said that his teenage son, who's by the name, whose name was, by the way, Justin, had never been to a church like it before. And he wondered what impression it would make on him. And sure enough, soon after his experience, Justin asked his preacher dad a question. Why do they need smoke machines in church? The pastor said that there was much that he could have said at that moment. He thought about contrasting the different philosophies of ministry, especially in relationship to the seeker movement in a postmodern culture. He also considered explaining how some, uh, how some view the Sunday worship as having components of both worship and evangelism. We certainly believe that. Has components of both uh, worship and evangelism. He said he thought about speaking to his son about the differences between entertainment and engagement and how they might look alike, but they're very different in intent and outcome. He even considered passionately sharing his deeply held convictions about worship theology and what it means to come before the throne of God as the people of God in the community of believers. He thought about all those things, saying to his son, but he was a very wise father not to criticize in these moments something that his son had just experienced. And he decided not to say any of those things. He simply responded to his son and he said, well, son, technically, technically, you need the smoke machines to see the, to see the lasers. <laughs> now, I want to stop here for just a moment because I'm in no way criticizing smoke machines or laser lights. We've used them both. I want to remind you that when Solomon dedicated the temple in the Old Testament, 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, do you know what it says? The smoke from the presence of God, the glory of God, filled the temple. Remember what it says in Revelation 15? In that heavenly temple, the smoke from the glory of God filled the temple, and there was lightning, and there was thundering. That's the ultimate laser light show. So this is not about using those things necessarily. But when people walk away talking more about the show than about the sun or the scriptures, you might as well have stopped, you might well have stopped worshiping in truth. At least that's a possibility, and you ought to ask the question, boy, wasn't the show great today? Man, I just felt great. We danced in the aisles and we danced in the pews. What'd you learn? Didn't learn anything. I got a few extra dance steps that I learned from somebody else. Are y'all with me? We worship in spirit and in truth. This is the expression. There's a disposition, a disposition of interest and sincerity and genuineness and enthusiasm. There's a devotion to the truth. I want to hear what God has to say out of his word. I have a, a man who several years ago, not recently, but several years ago said to me, he said, you know, you preach like the old preachers used to preach. That was about five years ago. And I was 60. So I guess I was an old preacher. Um, you preach like the old preachers. That wasn't intended to be a compliment, by the way. He wanted a pep rally. He wanted us dancing in the aisles. He wanted to do something that made goosebumps stand up on the back of your neck. Hey, look, I'm all for that sometimes too. But if it's absent of the word of God and the sound teaching of scripture, you have a wrong view of God. And because you have a wrong view of God, you can never worship God fully as he's deserving of worship. And then thirdly, talking about the expression of worship, let's talk about the destination. Where does worship take place? 
She said to him, you know, our father said you worship over here on Mount Gerizim. And your fathers, the Jews say you worship over here in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. And what did Jesus say? He said, there's a day coming when it's not on either mountain. It's in spirit and in truth. But let me stop here for a moment. Let me just tell you before I move forward that we are commanded as believers to worship God together in community with other believers. Not to do so is to be disobedient to God. You realize in Hebrews chapter 10, he's talking to a group of people who are under severe, Jewish people who are under severe persecution because they've become followers of Jesus. And some of them are thinking, I'm going to go back. I'm going to leave Christianity. I'm going back to Judaism. It was a whole lot easier when I was living back in Judaism than it is living for Jesus. And the author of Hebrews comes, comes and says to these people, don't do that. Christ is far superior to all of those shadows and images of the past. And then he comes and he says in chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another in so much more as you see the day approaching. Hear what he says? We got to get together because we need each other and we encourage each other and we help each other to worship and we get together And it strengthens us to be able to live day by day when we're not together. Someone has said that a Christian who says he worships God every Sunday morning on the golf course is really worshiping golf on God's course. Think about that for a moment. There's an illustration about a a church that had a man in the choir who couldn't sing. Others tried to help him find other places of ministry in the church, but he insisted on being in the choir. This is not Nathan, by the way. (laughs) The choir director became so desperate that he went to the pastor. He said, Pastor, you have to do something with Brother Jones. If you can't persuade him to leave the choir, then I quit, and most of the choir will quit too. Help us. The pastor went to the man and suggested that he leave the choir, and the man responded, Why should I leave? And the pastor replied, several people have told me you can't sing. To which, the man, to which the man said, well, that's nothing. Fifty people have told me you can't preach and you're still here. <laughs> Even if my preaching is bad and old-fashioned, God says to gather with the people of God when they meet for the worship of God and for the teaching of the word of God. Worship is something that we do corporately, but listen to me. Worship is also something we do privately. Worship is something that we we do personally and privately when we're alone with God just ourselves or when we're doing anything else in the course of a day. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that even the most basic tasks of life are to be done in a worshipful spirit. And then what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 10 31 when he says, therefore, whether you eat or drink, that's pretty basic, wouldn't you say? Whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all To the, do y'all know what it says? The glory of God. You do it all to the glory of God. Even to the most basic things of life. Worship isn't just about the corporate gatherings. It is that. But worship is about living every moment of every day. Consciously passionate about bringing glory to God in everything I do. Because he alone is deserving and worthy. Are you with me? Absolutely. That's what it means. Dr. Tony Evans, who's one of my favorite preachers out in Dallas, Texas, he said, if you limit worship to where you are, the minute you leave that place of worship, you'll leave your attitude of worship behind like a crumpled up church bulletin. And we have cleaned up a million of them in 40 years. But a lot of us leave our worship the same way. We want to live a life of worship 24-7, capped off. We want to live a life of worship 24-7, capped off by weekly gatherings with our local church family in corporate worship. One last thing I want to mention, and that is the effect of worship. And I'll talk briefly here. 
The explanation of worship, the expression of worship, the effect of worship. First, think with me about the delight. When you worship God and you begin to see him and hear him and recognize that he's worthy and deserving of everything you can give to him, the best that you can give to him, it causes you to have a rising delight in your heart at who God is. This past Sunday evening, I taught the 27th Psalm. If you didn't, you didn't hear it, you weren't here to hear it, go online at the website. You can listen to it. The 27th Psalm, an incredible psalm of worship. But in that psalm, listen to what he says in verse 4. David speaking says, One thing I've desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. That's not heaven. That's in the temple that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now listen, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What is the effect of worship? We begin to delight in God. We begin to enjoy him. We begin to recognize his great worth. We begin to understand the significance of who he is And as we delight in him, we begin to see the beauty of the Lord himself. Not just the beauty of a well-orchestrated service, but the beauty of the Lord himself. Dr. David Jeremiah said, if you don't worship, you'll never experience God. Did you hear that? If you don't worship, you will never experience God. There's more things I want to say about that, but I'm going to move to the last point, and that's when it comes to the effects of worship, there's the matter of dependence, dependence on God. Not just the delight that we have in God, but the dependence that grows on him. In Psalm 27, verse 5, he goes on to say, For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. What's the, what's, the, what's the psalmist David doing? He's worshiping God, and he says, God puts me in the secret place and hides me away, and he takes care of me. And the more I worship, the more I depend on him to watch over me and take care of me. It was 2020, and uh, one of the ladies of our church had one of the most severe illnesses that involved pain that I have ever, I have ever, been, uh, have ever known myself. Somebody in the prime of life. You know the COVID virus? She went to the ER on more than one occasion. Her husband had to stay outside. Nobody could go in. The doctors looked at her and tested her and checked her out. Didn't seem to be anything that was life-threatening necessarily. So all the rooms had to be saved for the COVID patients. They sent her home again and again and again to keep on having a repetition of excruciating pain. I watched and I prayed for this lady and her husband. I went one time to the parking lot and met him in the parking lot and just opened my window next to his and we talked together while his wife was being seen in the ER. Later, she was able to see other doctors and they were able to try different medications and come to some kind of a diagnosis that had neurological effects as well as physical effects that were going on. This lady was struggling. And I asked her one day in the past few months, I asked her, I said, how in the world did you survive? I mean, when I start hurting, I start crumbling. I mean, I've got, I've got uh, transverse myelitis. I don't even know exactly what that is, but I know what it does. And I crumbled when I first started having these uh, symptoms. How in the world did you go through what you went through? I don't understand how it is that you were able to endure through that. I would have crumbled. I would have fallen apart. I'd have asked God to let me die. And she told me, she said, this is what I did. I laid down on my bed. I prayed. I quoted scripture. And I put the music that I like to listen to on Christian music on. And I listened to it again and again until the pain would ease 
and I could go to sleep for a little while. I don't know if you know what that is or not. That's somebody like Job in the midst of the deepest pain you can possibly imagine saying, I'm going to worship God no matter what I'm going through. And out of that worship grew a confidence and a trust in God, a dependence on God that he's going to come to my aid and he's going to help me in the right moment and he's going to take care of me. He's going to get me through this crisis. That's what worship does. Worship creates an effect of dependence and delight. Oh, Lord, just to see you and just to know you and to be with you and just to know that you're with me and you're going to take care of me even if I can't get immediate relief from what I'm experiencing and what I'm dealing with in these moments. I want to give you an application. You say, Pastor, how can I worship this way? Because this is the first habit of a deeply spiritual person. The first habit is to worship God corporately and personally. Number one, take the first 10 minutes and the last 10 minutes of every day to focus on God and his goodness to you. When you wake up in the morning, before you even put your feet on the ground, stop and think, Lord, I'm thinking about you and I'm pondering you and I'm I want you to know I love you and I thank you for seeing me through the night. And when you go to bed at night, the last 10 minutes before you go to sleep, what I like to do those last 10 minutes, I like to spend it thinking about a scripture that's on my heart or on my mind. In the mornings when I get up, one of the first things I do in the morning in those first 10 minutes is with my Bible program, I have a book that has daily prayers, one or two sentence prayers. This was the sentence from this morning's prayer. O you who are the brightness of your Father's glory in the exact image of his person, may I catch some of that brightness and manifest some of that image that people may turn from my reflection to you, the eternal reality. You say, what? That's okay, it's for me. I want to be a reflector of the glory of God so that people will turn from this imperfect reflection to the perfect glory of God. And you think about it. That becomes a thought throughout the course of the day. Number two, prioritize the corporate worship on Sunday so that it becomes a habit. It becomes a habit that everyone in the family follows. I'm thankful for my mom and dad. I thought I wanted to be a professional golfer. I don't know if I would have ever been good enough to do that or not, but I dreamed about doing that. All the time I dreamed about doing that. And every summer they had these AJGA golf tournaments. I don't know if they called them that anymore or not. AJGA golf tournaments for, for, for young people, teenagers. And I wanted to play them all. My mother and daddy had a rule. Most of them were during the week, but there were some that were on the weekends. You can have two Sundays to miss during the summer for an AJGA tournament. It didn't matter if there's 10 you can have two Sundays that you miss. You know what I learned growing up? I learned growing up that to be at church on Sunday is where Christians are supposed to be. Somebody said, well, I've given up on organized religion. <laughs> then you've given up on God because everything God does is organized. And everything God does is religious. Number three, ask God to open your ears to hear him and your eyes to see him in private and corporate worship. Don't just rush into church and say, okay, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. God, show me yourself. Let me hear from you today. Lord, I want to experience you in the service. Number four, worship God as a participant, not as a spectator. Now, I don't like to lift my hands as much as I should. And I keep my hands in my pockets because of my mother telling me, David, put your hand, Davy, put your hands in your pocket. Don't touch anything in the store. If you, if you broke it, if you, if you break it, you bought it. Do you know what? Some of you are very comfortable lifting your hands. All of us are comfortable lifting our heads. Not just, not just standing there and watching somebody else do something. Watching the performance on the platform. As a matter of fact, I went to a church several years ago when it came time for the singing, the congregational singing, they turned off the platform lights 
so that it wasn't about the performance of the musicians that were on the platform. It was about the congregation singing their hearts out to God. Not a bad idea. Don't just be a participant. Don't just be a spectator. Be a participant. Number five, talk to your children every Sunday and at other times about the blessing of worship services. The singing, the preaching, the praying, the serving, the fellowship, and on and on. Have you ever seen people walk away from a, a football game or a basketball game? Man, did you see that pass? Did you see? He put his hand out like this, and he caught the ball with one hand, pinned it against his helmet, and went to the ground for a touchdown. We walk out of church and say, where are we going to eat? I didn't think he was ever going to finish. I sure wish we could do what some churches are doing today, have a 58-minute service. Or as one church I saw has a 20-minute service, and the advertisement for the church says, all of the necessary parts without the extras. All of the necessary parts without the extras. 20 minutes. Hey, God is not a fast food service. Number six, when you read your Bible, Write down one thought from the passage that you can carry with you for that day and the next one. Don't just read your Bible and walk away from it. Okay, I'm going to read something. What, what is it saying to me? What's, what's one thing I can carry with me through the day? And number seven, do the things you do every day as unto the Lord with the attitude of wanting him to be pleased. That means how I raise my children, how I love my wife, how I live my life, how I involve myself in recreation, whatever it is, Lord, I want to bring glory, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I want it to bring glory to you.